everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have New York State Assembly member Dan Court, who is running for DA in Manhattan. The election will be next year. Welcome to our show, Assembly member. Good to be here. So, how are things in New York these days? <laughs> um, different, different than the, uh, I mean, they're better than how they were in March, April, and May. So uh, you always have to look on the positive side of things. And, um, you know, we've had some uh, reoccurrences or second waves with the pandemic, uh, but nothing compared to March, April, and May, where just very difficult times um, uh, in New York City for all of us. Um, so. Things are better. You want to look on the bright side of things, but uh, our economy obviously has not opened up or come back yet, and uh, uh, the pandemic is still uh, with us. So wanted to talk to you mainly about uh, your run for DA and uh, get a sense for why you're running. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, for the last 11 years, Manhattanites have been represented by Cy Vance, the district attorney. And uh, for my nine years in the legislature, I have been in conflict with him on a whole host of policy issues and specific practices that I think have essentially coddled the well-off and well-connected and uh, been overly punitive or punitive in general uh, against poor people. Um, and I have a, a long nine-year record of, of disagreements and policy fights with Vance, but the biggest thing is how really he has downgraded the office of district attorney, uh, has not been a good DA. And I'm running not to do the small things, uh, not to changes around the edges of policy, but really deconstruct and rebuild the office of Manhattan district attorney to something that makes a difference in people's lives. And we can talk a little bit specifically uh, how I'll do that policy was, but uh, on basic values of decarceration. Uh, sending fewer people to our state correctional facilities uh, in New York and trying to find and will fight for a better sense of justice and fairness in Manhattan. So, yeah, I mean, what are the big issues that you're running on? And then we can kind of get into the policies of the DA's office that you want to overturn. I mean, there's three very broad issues um, that I will focus extensively on um, if I win this office. And one is a complete revamping of the sex crimes unit within the office. Uh, Many people across the country are familiar with uh, Jeffrey Epstein or Weinstein. Uh, Those are only two of the names uh, of many people who evaded justice 
uh, because of the inaction or failures of Cy Vance. And I have a specific nine-point plan on how I'm going to completely revamp the sex crimes unit within the office, uh, specific policy details. Second, um, to the elimination of surveillance-based prosecution, essentially racial profiling uh, by Vance and his office by use of technology uh, to catalog and uh, criminalize and then prosecute people based upon their race. Of course, he wouldn't agree with that assessment, but um, the so-called technologies that he's used uh, to criminalize uh, certain communities, the East Harlem, Central Harlem, um, and Washington Heights, where I grew up. Um, and I will be public about ending those practices because I, uh, they're immoral and unconstitutional, in my view. And last, uh, the thing I talked about in the opening, I think the things I'm most synonymous with in Albany, uh, the state capital for the last nine years, is fighting to end all sorts of practices that punish poverty with no public safety benefit. And I will implement many of these changes, uh, starting with declining to prosecute a whole host of crimes which are more indicative of poverty than criminal intent. Um, that is the three overarching themes of why I'm running and how I uh, would expect to achieve a level of decarceration in many respects and greater accountability, especially in the area of uh, uh, sexual assault and rape. Now, you mentioned you've been in the legislature for nine years. What's your background, though? I've also been a practicing attorney for 21 years, um, and the last three-plus years doing public defense work, uh, representing poor people, many homeless people in Manhattan criminal court. So it's a mix of practical trial and litigation experience, both in civil and criminal court in New York City, specifically Manhattan, as well as nine years uh, as a legislature representing parts of the Upper East Side in Midtown Manhattan in the state capital, and being an outspoken and effective legislator on reforming our criminal legal system. Um, and uh, I can point to all sorts of legislation, my efforts on uh, ending cash bail um, and uh, stopping the criminalization of work tools that Vance uh, has prosecuted as part of an extension of broken windows policing as to broken windows prosecution by Vance. So um, it's a combination of both uh, practical work experience as a working attorney in Manhattan, as well as nine years as a leader in the state capitol on fighting to reform our criminal legal system. So what is the Manhattan criminal court like? I mean, kind of walk us through it if we have never been there. Two-thirds of the cases the Manhattan District Attorney's Office generally deals with, and the numbers ultimately are higher after plea bargains, deal with misdemeanors. And in Manhattan Criminal Court, the Midtown Community Court on 54th Street and 9th Avenue, for those familiar with Midtown, um, deals only with misdemeanors and summonses. Um, but, I, but these are the bulk of the cases uh, brought through summons practices of the NYPD or the District Attorney's Office itself. And it's representing a whole host of uh, people who live on the economic fringes, people who uh, own uh, food carts or pedicabs, and a lot of homeless individuals who are uh, being fined or essentially being prosecuted in some of these courts, but it, it, not by the district attorney, um, for all sorts of things which are consistent with just being able to live and make a living and pay their bills or just for the sheer fact of being homeless. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of things in criminal court that have to do with poverty and homelessness.
And so you mentioned that you want to totally revamp uh, the district attorney's office. I mean, what what do you see as the big problems there, and, and what is your plan? Well, he's been a poor manager and a poor leader. And um, it's also a failure of policy, but it's a failure to run the office in a very in a, in a high in a highly professional or very good manner. So um, there are all sorts of problems with the management structure of the office, uh, his recruiting policies, his his retention of attorneys, how to create a pipeline uh, that uh, that that reflects the great diversity of New York City and expanding the number of uh, people of color into leadership positions in the office. So that, I have, uh, have ideas and plans on how I'm going to change that. But it's also creating a vision for the office. Um, if you recruit differently, which I will, um, and have diversity and excellence at the same time, you also have to provide your attorneys with a vision for what you hope they want to achieve. And for me, that vision, that goal is about decarceration. Um, and not being punitive. Um, in certain areas of the law, we will certainly prosecute um, when, when it comes to sexual assault and rape, vehicular violence, which is a, a real problem in Manhattan, as well as uh, on financial crimes related to uh, certain banking practices with money laundering. So uh, we will change certain departments and the practices with respect to a more aggressive approach on prosecution. But really when it comes to issues of poverty and socioeconomic problems. Too often, uh, this district attorney's office over the 11 years has taken a punitive approach. And that's what I'm going to reverse. And that's my vision of decarceration for the office. And um, what are your thoughts on Rikers and the fact that Rikers is finally going to be closed? And how, how does that get replaced or does it? Well, there's no guarantee that the uh, Rikers will get closed. Uh, in a court opinion, um, I think last week or maybe 10 days ago, uh, the city's plan for building newer, smaller jails uh, in four of the five boroughs of New York City was invalidated. But that case is on appeal. So um, the, the, the only way we're going to close Rikers Island, well, there's two ways. We're going to close Rikers Island. One, on the theory of smaller jails, um, community-based jails. And secondly, you elect district attorneys who are going to end cash bail and send less people to Rikers Island, the Tombs, or the Brooklyn Detention Center. Um, so it's a two-prong approach. But uh, just about a week or 10 days ago, uh, there was a court opinion invalidating the city's plan for building newer, newer jails, which was uh, which, and the premise behind that was that was necessary in order to close Rikers Island. What was the basis for the court opinion? Um, it was a lengthy opinion, and it wasn't on the substance of the plan that the mayor and the city council passed. It was about procedures. Um, in New York City, the, um, the, there are zoning requirements and uh, ULURP process, U-L-U-R-P process, that the council has to follow. The judge's opinion was that the, the council and the mayor did not follow that process. Um, so it wasn't on the merits of the plan. It was on uh, the procedures of following city zoning law. And can you speak to some of the problems of Rikers? I mean, a lot of people have heard about it. It's obviously a notorious place, but uh, is it really as bad as people say? It's worse. It's a hellhole. Um, I've done hearings on Rikers Island, um, parole hearings, 
and the courtrooms are, you, you can barely even call them courtrooms. They're adjacent rooms with video conferencing. Um, there's no rhyme or reason to what happens to it. Physically, it's separated, um, but it's separated in real ways, too, in that it takes hours for attorneys to get on the island to meet clients. Um, it, it's a human train wreck in terms of a court system and a courtroom as well as a, a place to house human beings. So um, from my own experience representing clients uh, on Rikers Island um, and as a legislator and uh, understanding uh, working in the legislature on corrections issues, um, I know that Rikers has to be closed. It's not salvageable um, and, and it, it's really a, a terrible place. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, interviewed uh, Eric Gonzalez a few months ago, and he used the exact same phrase, hellhole. Eric, Eric uh, yeah, it certainly is. And Eric's a good district attorney, and uh, he would know. Um, but it seems like everybody agrees that it needs to close. So, I mean, is this a real well, threat? Everyone agrees that it needs to close, but not everyone is willing to do what is necessary to ensure that it does. Um, and bail is one of the most significant ways we can reduce the jail population in Rikers Island to a point where it'll be easier to close Rikers Island. Um, I've, I've written legislation happened four or five years ago, ending cash bail. Um, uh, I believe that the connection between one's liberty and and their wealth or their lack thereof is uh, immoral, if not unconstitutional. And as district attorney, I would go well beyond the bail rules that the legislature passed, which um, then rolled back, and I voted against those rollbacks, to reduce the number of people we sent to Rikers Island. So um, that everyone agrees to it is great, but not everyone is willing to support the policies that will actually lead to it being closed. Uh, I will. I see. Um, and let me ask you, I, I, I don't know the answer to this. Is it your bill, uh, that was actually passed for bail reform or was it a different version? No, um, it, it was a version. The details are of how bills become laws in Albany are excruciatingly boring and they probably are to your listeners, but unfortunately so much happens through the budget process in the state capital and. Um, the initial reforms to the bail laws were done through the budget process, and then the rollbacks of the bail reform this April were also done through the budget process. So uh, I was proud of my vote against those rollbacks because, as I said at the time, it would likely lead to more be people being incarcerated, and that was right at the front of the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, history has proved me right, and um, the rollback to the bail reform have led to additional people being incarcerated. And why that is, that would be bad in and of itself. But in a time of pandemic, when uh, the rate of COVID infection is so much higher in our uh, county jail population than it is in the general population, this is the worst possible time to expand the number of people we sent to Rikers Island. Unfortunately, the legislature took that step in April. So what is the current bail law, if you can explain it in a nutshell? Um, there are certain categories of crimes that are bail eligible, and then certain crimes for people um, 
who may have parole by, uh, who may be out on parole and then get rearrested. Uh, the problem is if you expand the number, the categories, uh, you're going to expand the number of people who are who are going to go to Rikers Island for one very simple reason, and we just have to be blunt about this: prosecutors historically, and certainly under Sizant, they've been part of the problem. Rampant overcharging, uh, expanding the facts of the case to meet one of the bail eligible categories is a time honored uh, activity by this district attorney in Manhattan and many others. And that's the problem with having too many categories that are bail eligible. Um, they'll be used and they'll be used to send poor people to Rikers Island. And, and that will have a devastating effect not only on incarceration, but on public health and human health because of COVID and its, and its light and COVID rates in our in Rikers Island and other county jail facilities. Now, I know initially uh, when COVID hit, uh, Rikers really got devastated by the COVID infection. And then I, I don't know if uh, things have calmed down or if uh, people have covered other things. I, I know that in the last month or two in California, we've had uh, huge problems at San Quentin because the prison officials decided it was a good idea to transport people from one location to another without testing them first. And so they transported positive people into there and uh, San Quentin got uh, devastated by it. Uh, what's happening at Rikers right now with uh, respect to COVID? Well, nothing positive is happening at Rikers. And the also, you have to start with the fact that there's just not a there's not a comprehensive and consistent testing mechanism at Rikers, and this is not only for those who are incarcerated there. This is for uh, corrections officers, for all the vendors uh, that make that uh, make Rikers uh, uh, that go to Rikers on a day-to-day basis. So, yes, uh, we, we have concern for those who are incarcerated, there, but equally so for the hundreds, if not thousands, of people or in and out of Rikers each day. Um, I don't think there's sufficient testing to really identify the problem. Um, but what we do know is that the rate of infection of COVID at Rikers and other county jails throughout New York City is much higher than the general public. And has COVID changed our thinking on criminal justice at this point, or are we still stuck in the same place? Um, I, I wish I wish I could I wish I could say that changes in COVID have uh, uh, have, have brought us to a better place on criminal legal reform, but uh, I'm not sure that's accurate. Um, we still face the same fight on eliminating cash bail um, and uh, certainly on police accountability, and that has become a big issue in light of conduct by the NYPD at different protests throughout New York City, legitimate First Amendment constitutionally protected protests, and the NYPD's punitive, if not abusive, response to those protests. Yeah, I wanted to get into that issue as well. So what are you seeing right now in in terms of uh, New York and uh, police accountability? Well, there was just a a report by the Human Rights Watch uh, about an incident in, in the Bronx uh, detailing pretty extensively excessive force by the NYPD uh, uh, in a protest march and, and without real evidence uh, that there was a physical threat or any violence. Uh, 
by protesters. So it's not only to begin with heavy-handed, um, it's really gone off the rails at certain time by the NYPD. And, and really, it's been a failure by this mayor to hold the NYPD and the police commissioner accountable for rogue actions uh, by the police. Um, you know, the fundamental issue is, is there civilian oversight of the NYPD? And looking at the events of the last several months and probably beyond, you really have to question whether there is in New York City. So I remember the bad old days of uh, Luima and Diallo and, and and such. And then, of course, we had Eric Garner um, five years ago now. Um, so how do things compare to, uh, you know, the Giuliani time versus five years ago? Um, crime is, if you, you look at, you, if you look at the rates of criminal of crime, they're certainly better today um, than they were during uh, the Giuliani era. And if you look at any of the rates of crime, whether it's larceny, assault, uh, or homicide, certainly uh, our rates of crime are much lower today than they were during the Giuliani administration or even the end of the Giuliani administration. So things are, are certainly better when it comes to crime and crime levels in New York City. Uh, but we still have significant problems with uh, the NYPD about accountability, uh, transparency, and holding them accountable. And that is something very specific to District Attorney Cy Vance and something which my candidacy and, my, and as a district attorney, I would be completely different than him. Um, and that would include prosecuting police officers who engage in violence or to use excessive force. I'll give you one example, Officer uh, Garcia from a precinct uh, on East 9th Street and on the Lower East Side. Uh, In early May, uh, during uh, a social distancing arrest, he put his knee uh, into the upper shoulders and lower neck uh, of of a a gentleman. And um, all all that happened to him is he was put on modified death duty. Um, And as, as of today, uh, no real uh, consequences for his action. And the New York City taxpayers continue to pay his salary and pension. If I was district attorney, I'd be prosecuting Officer Garcia for misdemeanor assault. Um, it's just that simple. So I just won't do it. I will. What about the Eric Garner case? I mean, uh, is that a case that you would have prosecuted or, or do you know? Uh, certainly, I believe uh, Pennsylvania used excessive force and, uh, his actions led to the death of Eric Gardner. And, um, you know, that case was handled com- completely improper by the Staten Island District Attorney, who only brought murder one charges. Um, you know, Dan Donovan's motives are his own for why he only did that. But the evidence uh, certainly allowed for a lesser charge that I would have presented to the grand jury on the facts that. Uh, we saw in that, in that terrible incident on in that street in, in Staten Island. So, yes, I think Pantaleo should be prosecuted based upon the evidence that I saw. And if I were district attorney under similar circumstances, I would prosecute that sort of conduct by the by an NYPD officer. And I assume you're relatively familiar with the Breonna Taylor case. I, I mean, as a prosecutor, how would you look at that kind of case and would you be taking that to a grand jury or, or would you directly file in that, that kind of case? Well, it, it's appropriate to bring the case to the grand jury. 
The problem is what sort of evidence you provide to the grand jury. Um, and we don't have the transcripts and we don't know all the witnesses. Um, so, you know, I want to reserve judgment uh, until that happens. But it does, prosecutors have incredible power to cherry pick what evidence they want to bring to a grand jury and what evidence they don't. And really that ultimately can make the difference on whether there's an indictment or not. So, um, you know, when you have, have to look at whether the grand jury process was essentially manipulated by the prosecutor in Kentucky in that case um, to, to ensure the outcome that he may have wanted all along. And one of the things that the Kentucky case brings up is these high-stakes high raids and warrant uh, serving in the middle of the night. Um, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, you're, you're not necessarily going to directly have a role in that, but you may, uh, as a prosecutor, discourage the police from executing those kinds of warrants. Yes, yeah, I mean mostly that that that's a process that that's a process that the district attorney's office sometimes gets involved in and sometimes not. Um, but that does bring up a, a case that I think is relevant uh, in Manhattan. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I'm almost never would like to even mention their names. But when it comes to search warrants, uh, there was an incident in Manhattan in my own district 18 months ago. Uh, with the Proud Boys, um, which uh, infamous as they are now, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> because President Trump uh, couldn't even utter a couple a couple words uh, to say to say they have no place in civil society. But 18 months ago, or so, the, the Proud Boys were uh, were engaged in some sort of activities uh, in my own district, where they engaged in violence and a whole host of activities on the street beating up people. And what happened was uh, there weren't a sufficient number of arrests. So Sy Vance used a questionable search warrant tactic to try and gather evidence against them, which uh, didn't lead to any further arrests or prosecutions. Um, and, and I've spoken out and I've written legislation to end this practice of a reverse search warrant, which is essentially a general search warrant for all sorts of evidence um, excuse me, it's, a, it's called the reverse search warrant, which just allows um, the district attorney's office to gather information or records from anyone passing in the area, which is really a fishing expedition and, in my view, violates uh, the Fourth Amendment requirement of a particular search. So I have legislation uh, that would eliminate its use in New York uh, criminal courts, but most importantly, because you brought up search warrants, I think it shows uh, really how I would run the office much, much differently than the current occupant. And the other really interesting thing, I think it's a week or two old now, was uh, the memo from the DOJ declaring New York as an anarchist stronghold. Um, what was that all about? More nonsense and absurdities by Bill Barr, who's a, a disgrace as a, an attorney general. Um, it, it's, it's not even worth the paper it's written on. It, it's junk. Uh, Bill Barr has shown himself to be a, a hack and nothing more than the personal attorney of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, for so many people I know serving, have served in the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, it, 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 it is a shameful episode in this country's history what Bill Barr has brought. Has brought 
uh, on our criminal legal system and our criminal justice system. And then just more in general, I know you've talked about decarceration, but what kinds of policies would you introduce to actually implement it? What can a district attorney do in that respect? They begin with the decline to prosecute a whole host of crimes that are indicative of poverty um, and, and, and not really criminal and not of actual criminal intent. I'll give you one example of driving with a suspended license. Um, this is separate and distinct from uh, DWI, DUI, or reckless or aggressive driving. 80% of car owners in New York City are white, but over 70% of those who are actually prosecuted uh, for failing to pay fines and things of that nature are people of color. Um, so that, and why that is, you could look for a whole host of factors, but as district attorney in Manhattan, knowing those numbers, knowing the deep, racially disproportionate out, uh, negative outcomes there, I would simply decline to prosecute that and leave it as a civil, civil summons. And uh, that's the sort of guidepost I will use um, on not prosecuting certain lower-level crimes, uh, including a whole host of drug offenses, um, and um, because we have, especially on marijuana, um, and where, where Vance has declined to prosecute, but there's so many exceptions baked into the rule um, that I would just not, de- I would decline to prosecute a whole host of uh, criminal sanctions that relate to drug possession, uh, as well as driving uh, the fees that I just talked about. Uh, so I think that's a good way to start with decarceration. Um, it's not only about not sending people to prison, uh, which uh, uh, it's about not building up people's criminal convictions and criminal records because often being on parole is the predicate to being sent to state correctional facilities. So that's one way I would accomplish that goal of decarceration. Um, and what about fines and fees? That That's become a big issue um, that uh, is also uh, lending itself to a lot of inequities in the system. It is, and I deal with this uh, as a criminal defense attorney in Midtown Community Court. So many of the cases that I deal with, and I think this illustrates the point, um, so many of the cases and clients that I represent are all coming in on summonses that uh, have fines and fees attached to it, Um, whether it's pedicab violations or food card vendors or the absurdities of uh, the homeless people being given summonses for where they sit or lie or stand. Um, so many of these summonses have fines attached to them. Now, often the fines can be dealt with and they, they're given diversion practices, which are a whole separate problem. Um, but I, I had, these are the types of cases and type of people I represent. So, and, and then as a legislature, uh, this all goes back, unfortunately, 25 years to 1995, and terrible decisions in the legislature um, to criminalize poverty uh, by essentially a tax on poor people by fines. Um, there is legislation, and I'm working on it in Albany with others. Uh, it's called the Clean Slate legislation to change the mechanisms uh, uh, to eliminate these fines. A lot of all these fines, are, a lot of them are not discretionary. So judges really don't have the ability to waive these. Fines. Um, they've been set by the legislature um, in really an insidious manner going back 25 years. But we do have to do this very carefully um, because if you if you just 
it's not as easy as it seems because there can be negative immigration consequences for just recalling cases in mass in the good faith effort to try and expunge these records. So this requires careful consideration to try and do this in a way um, that allows district attorneys like me, if I was elected, to work through the county, to work to try and expunge people's records. But at the same time, we have to be very careful about legislation that could have, unintended as it may, negative immigration consequences by recalling thousands of cases. That's an interesting point. Um, so th- the other issue I, I wanted to discuss briefly is the murder rate. Uh, we've been looking at that pretty closely. And it's it's really interesting uh, what's happening with the crime because overall violent crime mostly across the nation is about stable from where it was last year. It's, of course, at or near 40-year lows. So, uh, you know, putting it into... Uh, the big perspective, it's still, uh, you know, much better than the bad old days, uh, but it has gone up this year. Um, do you have any sense for why that would be? Oh, it's, it's complicated as to the why. Uh, I, I think something has to do with economic downturn and uh, crime in certain categories traditionally might go up during an economic downturn or recession. And that's certainly what New York City finds itself in. Um, you know the causes. The causes are many, uh, and it's something I would have to address. I would address as district attorney. But the answer is not to take a carceral approach. The answer is not to send more and more people to jail and longer and longer sentences. Um, that's never solved anything, um, and and that's not something I would support. Um, so it's important we also be honest, uh, and I will as a candidate, um, that the answer to a lot of these problems have to do with things that have nothing to do with prosecuting people. They have to do with the failures of government for decades and generations on housing policy, on job creation, on neighborhoods that have been under-resourced. The neighborhood I grew up in, Washington Heights and upper Manhattan, uh, with a deprivation of resources, certainly as compared to the districts I represent in the midtown Manhattan and the Upper East Side. So, I think you look, uh, I think holistically, the problems have more to do with things that happen in society than anything that that can be done addressing it in the courtroom. Now, you're speaking to the converted on that issue, and I definitely agree. But do you get any kind of sense that the voters are are kind of shifting on this? Or do you feel like they kind of uh, have come to the conclusion that uh, mass incarceration doesn't make them safer? Well, I've come to that conclusion, and uh, that's why I'm running for district attorney. And uh, and I hope the voters see it that way. Um, but if they want a more punitive approach and longer sentences, then I'm not their candidate for district attorney. And uh, I'll respect that difference. But um, that's not what I've been about for nine years in Albany or three years as a criminal defense attorney or 21 years uh, as an attorney practicing pro bono work for the Legal Aid Society's housing division. Um, and that's not the candidacy or the values I'm offering in this campaign. Um, I see a vision for the office about, yes, accountability, and certainly we will prosecute when required. Um, but jail sentences are way too long to begin with. I've seen from my legislative position virtually nothing positive happens in our state or county jail facilities. 
Um, so I will not employ practices that I don't believe in, and that will just exacerbate the problems and inequities of poverty and the lack of services to, to communities throughout Manhattan. Now, the election is next summer? Nine short months from now, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fourth Tuesday in June, but who's counting? <laughs> uh, and I mean, that's the primary date, not the general election date. Understood. Uh, and it's uh, a whole bunch of people, right? Uh, there's nine of us, uh, excluding Sivans, who has not officially made his intentions known. That was going to be my next question. So you don't know if you're facing an incumbent or or facing just a free-for-all? No, um, Cy and I don't talk much. And, uh, <laughs> he, he hasn't, but he has not... <laughs> Uh, he has not made his intentions publicly known. Um, so, uh, you know, the question is better posed to him. But uh, there's nine of us in the race, and uh, it, it should uh, Manhattanites, Democrats in Manhattan will, will certainly have a choice uh, of different visions and values amongst the nine of us. Well, very good. I wanted to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your uh, vision of Manhattan's uh, district attorney's office. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. That was Dan Quart. He's running for DA in Manhattan. He's currently an assembly member in New York State, and their election is at the end of June next year, so not this coming November, but next June. And it figures to be a lively race, regardless of whether or not the incumbent runs. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.